Welcome to Tits Up. When things go tits up, they're broken. Tits up can also mean brave up and get on with it. This is what we do as mothers. When things are broken, we pull up our big girl pants and we wade through the muck. Good luck, Mum. You'll be great. You are great. <laughs> then rang them and said, Aww. oh, I don't need to come in. I'm pregnant. And she said, you know what? So funny. We get these calls all the time. <laughs> Staying calm. and But on the inside, I was really stressed. What are they bang on about? <laughs> <laughs> breathe this baby out. When Elsie got stuck, then we were stuck, meaning Tom and I, because we didn't know what to do. Just don't let her shave her head. It would be pretty ugly. <gasps> That's another baby in there. They're so incompetent. They left a twin <laughs> in there. Somehow it had clicked in that your intuition was on spot. It still took two years to get a proper full diagnosis. And you don't know what you don't know, do you? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, <laughs> you know, what's it saying? Everybody asks if the baby's eating or sleeping and, or, you know, crying too much, but nobody asks if the mother's eating or sleeping or crying too much. This episode of Tits Up is sponsored by Booby Foods, all natural and organic foods to nourish you as you breastfeed your baby. Hello, our Tits Up guest today is Stephanie Thompson. Cancer survivor, author, advocate, change maker, wife, and mother of two little people. Steph is the author of The Day My Vagina Broke and she's Chief Brave Mama. In 2015, Stephanie suffered a traumatic childbirth injury that changed her body and life forever. Stephanie is now on a mission to share her story and start conversations about how we view and talk about women's health. She wants to do everything that she can to stop anything like this from happening to her own daughter, Elsie. Because when we know better, we can do better. Welcome, Steph. Thank you very much. It's so lovely to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure. So can we start with your tits up experience of having your first baby and how you discovered things weren't normal, as your parents sure. were telling you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. My beautiful Elsie, she actually just popped her head in around the corner before we started and said, good luck, mum, you'll be great. <laughs> you are great. <laughs> Isn't she wonderful? Oh, she is the most beautiful God-sent thing on this planet at the moment. She's just gorgeous. So Elsie's turning six this year. So I gave birth in 2015 and it took five years to conceive her. Um, obviously, with the cancer journey, I was always well aware that falling pregnant might be a bit tricky uh, and some IVF might have been you know on the cards so after probably about the fifth year of nothing happening I thought it was probably time to to have a look at IVF and went to the clinic in Sydney and started the process and I was due actually it's funny I was due to go in on the Wednesday to pick up all of the steroids and medications and stuff to start IVF and then I was pregnant on the Monday and rang them and said, Aww. oh, I don't need to come in, I'm pregnant. And she said, you know what, so funny, we get these calls all the time. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's like your body just, or your head talks to your body or something like that and then. Yeah, I think that, that, 
Yeah, yeah. It's an element, I think, when you think, oh, well, it's happening, so I might relax a bit. But I also did have a medical procedure done, um, I think, two months before that. So, yeah, there was a bit of a pipe cleaning thing and a vitamins for hubby and vitamins for me, and then it kind of all came together. So we're pretty lucky in that sense. So as you can imagine, right, that, that whole pregnancy, I was trying to be doing everything the right way and staying calm and but on the inside I was really stressed I actually had these incessant thoughts about miscarriage all the time I was scared I was going to lose her and I just wanted her on the outside so badly but even when I kind of talked about this with my midwife and my team throughout the pregnancy I was always told stop worrying Steph you stress too much but I'm I'm an A-type personality I'm a pretty I think a lot and I, you know, worry a lot about things. Um, so I tried to just not worry about it. I tried to turn it off and went to calm birth. And then I went to the birthing classes at the hospital and I felt like I read every book that was available at that time because I wanted to get it right. I wanted the birth to be right and I just wanted her to be birthed alive. <laughs> um So we immersed ourselves in all of that and I guess things were going pretty well actually at the beginning. So we were, you know, going through all the movements and active labour at home. I think they said to us, when you feel like you're in labour, go and bake a cake. So I did. (laughs) I actually went and made a cake because it was my uncle's birthday and I thought, yeah, I can make a cake. As things got intense, obviously, we'd be popped into the hospital by the afternoon and they said, oh, you're only one centimetre, go home, relax. So we did that. And as things got more intense, I think we went back in the hospital about 11.30 that night. And my midwife said, hey, Steph, congratulations, you're seven centimetres, you're going to meet your baby tonight. So in my mind, I'm thinking, tonight, that's half an hour. Shit, this is easy. Okay, I can do this. (laughs) Yeah, piece of cake. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I've done all the right things. Like I've just seen my mind is going tick, 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 tick. Yep, we're doing it. So we got uh, checked into the birthing suite. They ran the bath and the midwife was there. She was, you know, very hands-off and quiet so that you could just let me labour. And all of those things that you imagined and were taught were happening. We put the music on, we had the candles. And I actually looked at Tom at one point and went, this is pretty easy. What are, what are women, what are they bang on about? <laughs> <laughs> I breathe this baby out. <laughs> I am just going to open my vagina and she's going to float on out. And so in the bath as things were getting, um, you know, more intense, I was using the heat from the bath and it was pretty good. And even still then I could hold a conversation and I thought, yeah, right, here we are. Now what happens next I'm pretty sure that there's like a six-hour period between that bath and when she was born or maybe more. But to me, it felt like I've lost time, right? I've lost track of time of how long and what happened. So I'm not even going to try and retell that. Basically, in a nutshell, it went from calm candles, cool music to me on my back with legs in stirrups with a room full of people who I'd never met in my life. I had some registrar doctor, her boss, a paediatric doctor and a nurse, 
And my midwife was there the whole time, thankfully, because it was the only familiar face I knew other than my husband. And um, what I say is when Elsie got stuck, then we were stuck, meaning Tom and I, because we didn't know what to do. We were just basically putting our full faith and trust in our the team that were in the room, and that was totally fine. I was shit scared. I was scared that something was wrong with her. And when I'd asked, what's happening? Is she not okay? They would say, no, she's fine. But in my mind, I was that critic that, or that skeptic that said, well, why the freak are you all in here then? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you were expecting. No, and just the fact that I think at one point the only position I was comfortable in was standing, but my legs were shaking because of I was fatigued. I'd been doing it for hours, mm-hmm. but not knowing I was doing it for hours, to the point where I'd started vomiting. I was vomiting red Gatorade all over the bed, and I remember trying to clean it up. I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh. And the midwives like, don't worry about it. So I think once it got to that point when I was vomiting everywhere, that's when they called in this team. And basically, um, Pinky, all I can really remember is the registrar at the end of the bed when my legs open, and she's kind of got the scissors in her hand and she said, look, we need to get the baby out or I'll have to send you for an emergency Caesar, kind of pointing to the door. And I looked at Tom and he looked at me and we both looked at our midwife and we're like, I don't know, what, what do we do? <laughs> like, oh. It wasn't like it was actually a choice. It just was like, if you don't let me do this, you're going to the naughty corner because I will point out too, like throughout all of our birthing education, it was kind of told to us that we won't need a Caesar if we just trust our body and we just, if Tom just tickles my back and lets the, the good oxytocin flow then we won't need a caesar and so i always thought in my mind it was something that only people who are in real distress have so when she said that i'm like oh shit we're in real distress here i've got to let them do what they've got to do and just trust that they they, they know what they're doing right mm. so i was like okay and then i felt like as they were cutting the episiotomy she's like i've just got to do a little snip like okay sure whatever (laughs) I can't feel anything anyway I was in so much yeah I was in so much pain my back I remember just that intense pain in my back um which now we know because she was posterior that back to back was was quite intense um and so when they then said oh we're just going to try and turn her with the vacuum so that's what they said the vent Ventus, is it called? Yeah, Ventus, yeah. Ventus uh, vacuum. I didn't find out until mm, a year later going through like the legal system when they read my file, my lawyer told me that the vacuum failed four times. Oh. And apparently four, and apparently they're only meant to do it twice or three at most, four times. And so that's when the decision was made to use forceps. And I didn't even know what forceps were um, to get her out. And I guess at that point, you just want the baby to be alive. It doesn't really matter what happens. So they pulled her out. And I just remember that my face was covered in blood. And I thought, oh, that's, I knew the babies come out all mucky, 
but I didn't realize they come out with so much blood. Like, isn't that weird? You always worry that you're going to poo on your baby when you're in vaginal mm. labor, mm. but you don't think about them covered in blood. But looking back at the photos, it wasn't my vaginal blood. It was the blood. They actually tore the scalp off a massive patch of her head with the vacuum. Oh, so that's awesome. yeah. She's actually got quite deformed bones um, on the on the top of her head now. From she's actually got like a kiwi cup shape on the top of her head. Even now, six years later, it hasn't gone away. Nah, it's going to be like that forever, apparently. Um, and the you know the ridiculous thing about that, the advice I was given by the pediatrician just said, just don't let her shave her head. It'll be pretty ugly. <gasps> Was that at birth? Oh. He said, no, this was uh, when we went to go and see. Obviously, we were concerned with this lump on her head hadn't gone away after maybe six months or something. Yeah. And he said, just don't shave it. Don't let her shave her head as a teenager because it it's going to be pretty ugly. Not, no, she'll be fine. There's probably no brain damage. Like nothing really no reassuring. reassuring. It was all just cosmetic. cosmetic. <laughs> just cosmetic. Yeah. But anyway. Um, so... Basically, once she was on my chest, I, Tom and I didn't speak. Well, I think we were just in shock. We didn't cry like you do. You see that in the movies. We're like, oh, my baby, she's finally here. And we just were silent and we couldn't really talk and we couldn't really cry. We didn't do anything. We just, I was just laying there numb, I think. Um, and then pretty much they spent a long time down at my vulva and, vag- and obviously vagina sewing, which again I found out later had three layers of stitches, two internal, one external. There's about 40 stitches or something. I don't know, like whatever. It was a mess. It was an absolute mess down there. And so um, with all of that, the hospital sent me home the next day and they said, here is some Panadol for that baby because she's probably in a lot of pain from her head. And not as much as a check on me, nothing. They wheeled me out in a wheelchair because I couldn't walk. And that was it. We went home. So um, Tom and I thought, well, that's how you birth. That's what it is. That's what happens. Because I think the next day, sorry, I I must say, my midwife's boss came in the next day and just said, oh, you did amazing. You were wonderful. Good girl, blah, 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 all very positive. Oh, isn't she a beautiful girl, blah, blah, blah. What's her name? Elsie, oh, that's lovely. And that was it. And then I got wheeled out in a wheelchair and went home thinking that that was normal and that was it. (laughs) Wow. Wow. And then Mm. when you were at home, you would have had midwife visits. They did, yeah. So they were meant to come, I think, for 10 days or something every day. But being October... And, of course, all of those lovely couples who decide to get funky at Christmas, October is really busy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) baby. In the the birthing suite, it was chock-a-block. I basically, um, after we birthed her, um, they popped me in the shower really quickly and then wheeled me to the ward because they just needed that room. And I think, um, similarly, the midwives were systemically overworked. My midwife would come over in the morning you could tell she'd had a, she'd been birthing in the night and she'd still have to come and see me. And I just used to feel sorry for her. I was like, this can't be right. <laughs> this is ridiculous. You're always just working. Um, 
And I think that week was particularly hard in my hospital in particular because I lost a mum in birth and she obviously felt horrible about that, but my visits were very short. I remember them being very, yep, you're good, all good, yep, baby's latching for breastfeeding, great. See you, see you tomorrow. But nobody checked your body. Nobody checked your vagina. Nobody checked your stitches. Uh, not until I demanded it. So <clears throat> two days later, I'd gone to the toilet. And because of my generation, we were never really taught to look at your vulva. It wasn't a thing. Um, I felt I felt like when I was wiping myself after the toilet, like there's a hole or something. I didn't. I can't quite describe it, but it didn't feel right. So I decided to get out a mirror, oh, no, my phone because I didn't have a mirror, and I took a photo and I looked at that and I was like, holy heck, what's that? Is this, that's another baby in there. They're so incompetent. They left a twin (laughs) in there. (laughs) That's a baby's head because it was just this pink flesh thing, round, perfect little round thing at the opening of my my vagina that looked like a baby's head. So I remember I was in the bathroom with the door shut my husband's on the other side and I'm saying, Tom, help me. Oh my God. So he's on the phone to the midwife outside the door. Cause I wouldn't let him in. And I'm trying to tell him what, what was I, what I could see. And she was saying, Oh, you're fine. It's okay. It's all normal. And I remember just screaming. Can I swear on these podcasts? Yeah. And you I won't said, be the first person. <laughs> I'm not fucking fine. This is not fucking fine. This is terrible. What is this? And anyway, basically in a nutshell, she said, if you're that worried, go to your GP tomorrow. So the next day I was at my GP's door before he even opened. I'm like, you are not not seeing me right now. (laughs) I'm a distressed, sleep-deprived new mum with a second baby in me. So he did. He, he, he actually, he couldn't see me because there was no nurse. And apparently from there, he was from the UK and the protocol is you have to have a nurse in the room. So I was like, this is ridiculous. Because also at the time, Pinky, um, I could smell something funky. There was an off smell coming from my undies. So I felt like something might have been infected. And infections do smell when you have them post-birth. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bit yellow and mucky. And so... Um, when the nurse came in, he obviously saw me straight away. And I just remember him looking at me and they were gooing and going over Elsie, obviously. And he said, oh, darling, what happened to you? And I was like, what do you mean? I just gave, I have a baby. He's like, it's a mess down there. What has happened? And I was like, oh. that was kind of like the first point where I thought, maybe this isn't right. Maybe this isn't normal. Because at the same time, I was, I couldn't walk. I couldn't sit. And I couldn't stand. So my mum and auntie were obviously thinking, hmm, something's not quite right here. But I kept telling them, it's normal. My midwife said it's normal. You know nothing. She knows everything. I could only lay down. I was laying on my side all the time. And they're like, yeah, I don't don't know if this is quite right. Anyway, when my doctor said that, I was like, oh, okay. Why? What do you mean? He said, well, all your stitching has come undone. So the the external layer has come undone. It's infected. I'm going to have to send you back to the hospital. I think the next day the midwives did see it and said, "Mm, it's not so bad. But by that after, yeah, they did check it. They did actually check it. And they said, oh, 
it's not so bad. And this is the hard thing because one, because I was a team of two and one of them would say, have a salt bath, you'll be fine. But the other one would say, don't you dare have a salt bath because you'll deteriorate the other stitches. <laughs> so it was your doctor and versus the midwife, one would say, no, the, the, oh, the team two, midwives. two midwives. Oh, okay. So they didn't even <laughs> And one agree. would say, okay. well, one would say, you know, don't breastfeed on your side and try and do it that way. And the other one would say, no, you can't do that. You're too small. And so I was just really bloody confused. And then I then rang the hospital and said, I need to see an obstetrician. I need to see someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> I'm having a really bad time. And it was dismissed at first. So then I just turned up and just said, I have got an appointment. Who with? Um, oh, I forget his name. I don't know. <laughs> and I was. <laughs> so you had end, jumped in by then. You, you know, your brain had somehow it had clicked in that your intuition was on spot. Yeah, something wasn't right. And. I obviously then listened to my mum and then I obviously listened to my aunt. She was a nurse. She would know. And so when they said something's not right, and my sister, they're all birth babies, mm. I was like, okay, maybe I just need to check it out. So I went up there and saw an obstetrician um, who was like a knight in shining armour. He, he was very methodical and had a really good look and he said, it's not great what's happening to you, but you will be okay. I'm going to put you on this antibiotic and that antibiotic because they're safe for breastfeeding and just really talked me through a whole lot of stuff. But I could tell that um, what, what happened to me probably wasn't normal. He wouldn't, he's very professional. He wouldn't actually talk about it too much, but I'm like, does everyone have this? He's like, mm, not everyone. <laughs> You know, oh, so he's trying to be ethical around other health professionals. Correct. And I really appreciated that. And mm. the reason why I share that is because I actually, I connected with him and he did treat me and I did get better without, because the, there was a chance I'd have to go back in and have it all redone under anesthetic, restitched, mm. refixed. And he said, let's just see how you go. Let's give it two days. If in two days you come back, and, and by this time he said to me, here's my number, ring me. Just ring me direct. I'm like, okay, I like you. <laughs> You're yes. good. <laughs> yes, those, those ones are really good, aren't they? I've had a couple of those in my life and they are, you go, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. He, he could see how stressed I was. Um, so, yeah, so that, you know what, and it eventually, it took a long time to heal. So then... At the same time, we realised that that lump wasn't a twin. It was my bladder. It was my vaginal wall. It was my bladder. So basically that um, first initial, oh, you've probably got a prolapse. And I was like, a what? A pro what? A what? What's that? Oh. So then that, you know, that journey began about what a pelvic organ prolapse was. And it still took two years to get a proper full diagnosis of what I've got now. That's unreal. And, you know, when you're thinking about, like, your gut instinct was there in labour that, you know, things were going pear-shaped. Your gut instinct was there that this didn't feel right. Your gut instinct was there that you, you know, but, and eventually you flipped and went, yeah, this isn't normal. But, you know, your gut 
and your mum and your auntie and your sister were all telling you that what you were experiencing wasn't normal. And mm. I know lots of women, you know, put their faith in their professionals, but why do you think, you know, women, it takes women that time to switch back into their own power that they, you know, have handed over to the experts in inverted commas when your heart mm. and your intuition is, is really yelling at you? I think because obviously I'd never done this before and from that very get-go, from weighing on the stick and it being positive, I was on a mission to find the best care and within my local area, the midwife-led midwife -led practice was known as the best care. Um, and so once I got onto that program and met my midwife, I wanted to do everything to ensure that she would be there at the birth. And so I think I played now retrospectively, I can see a good patient. So I kind of just took everything she said for gospel because at any point, apparently you can be kicked off the program. Okay. So you're getting expelled from school pretty much. So you, pretty better, much. you better shut up and behave. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. You just better, you better trust those people and you do because they are the professionals you haven't had a baby before and I wanted to I wanted mm. to trust her and I really liked her and I think she had a lot of knowledge she had five children of her own and her intentions were always good they were always yeah. good and yeah. so when I was out of my depth I thought well I don't know even when you were just saying then your instincts kicked in at that time I didn't know that's what it was even happening even to the point where they said, well, this is a bit contentious, all right, but they said, you don't need anyone in the birthing suite other than your husband because your mum wasn't there at conception, so she doesn't need to be there at the birth. And so oh, when it's pretty tough. So when I didn't let mum into this birthing suite, it was contentious for us. It actually really fractured our relationship. And I wish I could go back now potentially and talk about it some more I don't know if I'll change my mind because you can't you can't say that yeah. you don't know but I was very that's how much I trusted her the midwife whatever and your she mom said, had been at your sister's birth all of them and her sisters and that was the thing mom's like when I've been at so many births I can be really good and I'd be like no no my midwife said no <laughs> oh that's interesting yeah because my daughter had her one of my daughters, obviously one of them had her baby in Dubai. So I was not involved in that at all because COVID, um, the little gift yeah. that keeps on giving. But my <laughs> other daughter lived down the road, you know, not far from us, you know, probably 15 minutes away from us. And I had said to her, if you, if at the time you want me to come, I'll come. I won't be offended if you don't want me to come. And I got this call late at night from her then husband saying, um, you know, she's in labour and her contractions are, I don't know how many minutes apart because I'd never timed contractions anyway yeah. when I had my own babies. But, you know, and that's what they'd been told. And I said, what are you telling me? Do you want me to come or not come? Because, you know, it's nearly midnight and I'm thinking, do I go to bed? Do I stay up? What do I do? Now nah, she wants you now. Right. And I went, yeah. right, turn the lights down, chuck her in the bath. I got there, she's vomiting and, you know, all that sort of thing. Um. But I was there and I think just quite often having that, other person can just reassure you because I don't think you know your partner's never had a baby before generally I, I mean there are partners who've had babies before but but Tom had it all in the dark and if your mother could have been there even when you were at home 
it could have just made that little bit more sense to you to I just think have that extra support for him too. I think yes, a hundred percent for him to look to mum as to are we doing the right thing, Lynn? And you know, and I think in retrospect, she believes that if she was there, that that birth trauma wouldn't have been experienced because she could have been an advocate for both Tom and I when we had no voice. Mm. It's interesting because you'll never know. No, no, that's funny. It's a retrospect. And And she's probably beating up on herself that she probably wasn't a bit more assertive or something like that because you don't, as a grandmother, you don't want to... Correct. And I'm stubborn as a mule. I'm a a Taurus. She knew... If she pushed more, I would have pushed back altogether. So, yeah, it's a funny thing. And you know what? My second birth, I did the same thing. It was just Tom and I, and we were totally okay. We needed that experience. But I remember her saying, well, what happens if Elsie goes to birth and she doesn't want you there? And I'm like, okay, I'll have to respect it. But it's interesting, isn't it? It's very interesting. (laughs) It is. It is. And it's family dynamics and you just, and you don't know what you don't know, do you? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you still made the decision to have another baby. Now you went through all sorts of things in the meantime with your medical care and I did. How did you ever find the person that encouraged, well, supported you through that? Well, I found that obstetrician. I know this is going to sound really bizarre, but um, I think we were one and done after that traumatic experience because we didn't even call it a traumatic birth because we didn't even know it was a traumatic birth until uh, way after the fact. And we'd been through a because we were just new parents. We just wanted yeah. to enjoy our girl. We'd, but then when things were starting to get really tough and the prolapse symptoms were so bad, I couldn't hardly walk. I couldn't be a mum. I felt really useless. Um, we looked at legal avenues because everyone kept saying to us again within our trusted family and circle, this wasn't right, it shouldn't have happened to you, perhaps some compensation. In my mind, I just wanted an apology. I just wanted for someone to acknowledge and say to me, actually, Steph, it probably wasn't normal and we're sorry we told you that it was normal and sent you home mm. to the point where you were so unwell where I was lucky I had paramedic friends who came to visit me and put me on a drip. My blood pressure was 80 on 60. <gasps> and they said, you are very unwell, very, very unwell. What, what the hell? Why are you even home? But anyway, that's, I digress. Yep. Basically, um, what had happened during that hospital time, and, uh, sorry, where was that? We were one and done. I was like, that's it. Elsie's here. She has fulfilled my lifelong goal to become a mom let's just try and live the best way we can and then we were kind of watching her play on the kitchen floor one night I think she was nearly one and I said to Tom so we're good but what about the kid what if she wanted a sibling she can't say yes or no she's too little we'd never thought about her we never thought that you know him and I both had siblings we'd love being part of a family I originally wanted six kids before all of this um so we then started talking about it some more do we really want another baby can I carry another baby with a prolapse like this I don't know could I even birth another baby and so we started that process I spoke to my surgeon women's health physio doula midwives GP I was like hounding everyone basically 
in a nutshell, the three surgeons I spoke to, oh, that's three, let me try that. <laughs> one said, um, both said yes, and only one said, yes, you can certainly have another baby, but you need to consider if you were struggling physically to care for her now, adding another one in the mix could be harder. And I was like, so I can have another baby, yeah? Like, you know, I was that headstrong. So then um, this is another element that makes it really hard. But basically sex, sex has never been the same with prolapse and this birth trauma. So it took for me to get really, really drunk at her first birthday to even consider it. And bang, straight away, I was pregnant. I was like, wow, okay. I think the decision has been made. (laughs) (laughs) I then was on a mission to find someone to help me birth the baby. Uh So I rang the hospital looking for that guy. Like, where's that obstetrician? Where was he? Where, Where did he? Anyway, I later found out that he resigned in protest for what the practices and systemic issues that were happening in the hospital at that time but he was going out in private practice and I tried to ring everywhere. I couldn't find him anywhere. And I thought, Oh, I can't do this. So then we started shopping for obstetricians and we started going to different appointments. And I think too, Pinky, the reason why we went that way is because I think it's natural that if you have not such a good experience, you run in the opposite direction. So if someone has a traumatic uh, C-section with a private obstetrician, they're probably going to head over to midwifery leg care. <laughs> yes, yeah, or they'll try for a Just, VBAC or that, yeah, and they'll try yeah. at home, all sorts of things. Yeah, people, you don't know and you don't know why, you know, don't necessarily know why things didn't really quite go right. That's right, and I think that you just want to make it a different experience I knew that I just couldn't step foot in that same building and have that same experience just because my fear was going to be way too much and anxiety so I went to the hospital next door found an obstetrician we went to quite a few appointments and a couple of them I met one of them said to me oh look darling you're only seven weeks pregnant let's just see if he makes it first the language and the you know like from the bump on the head don't let her shave her head to just let's see if you get to you know a viable baby because you're only seven weeks those throwaway lines are so awful and they play on your mind don't they well yeah to remember this and so basically we just opened our hearts and shared our traumatic first experience and how we wanted the second one to be total opposite and then he just said that and I was like cool thanks here's your 250 bucks we're never seeing you again goodbye (laughs) (laughs) so eventually I tracked down this you know this halo of a man and he just opened his practice and we spoke on the phone for two hours two hours because he obviously didn't know where we'd been in that a year and a bit and I said I can only birth if you will agree to let me have a c-section And he said, just come and talk to me about that first. Come and have an appointment. And we did. And he was amazing through the whole seven months. Every fear, every question was answered to a degree where both my husband and I were like, okay, we understand that. We know what that means. 
it was him and another surgeon who said to me, I think you could probably birth vaginally again. I don't think your cesarean is really necessary for you. All the damage has been done. And, um, but he did say mentally, if you don't think, if it's going to trigger too much trauma, we could look at a cesarean, but do you know what they are? And I'm like, no, I had no idea. Just a zip. Yeah, just a zip. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's what I thought. So when he talked me through, I was like, step by step by step, by the end of the conversation, I was like, ooh, hmm, that doesn't sound as easy as what they make out as on telly. I know I couldn't drive for six weeks, but wow, that's quite a lot involved. Um, and it helped me make that inform- that real informed decision to birth vaginally again. Definitely. Yes, and that that's it. If you can have that information from someone who is giving you the full information. Yes. That makes such a difference. Newborns need to be fed around the clock and the mama milk machine does not stop day or night. The average baby requires at least nine hours of hands-on care a day And that doesn't include all the extra tasks of washing, cooking and basic self-care, like simply having a shower, that goes with a new addition to your family. As you breastfeed and care for your baby, feeding yourself is often the last thing you can manage. And this is why I, Pinky, I'm an international board certified lactation consultant, created delicious booby foods. So far, booby brickies and booby brekkie to nourish you as you breastfeed your baby. As a nourishing snack, an analysis by Victoria University Melbourne found that Pinky's booby foods can be a helpful nutritional complement to a healthy, balanced diet. And because we know that everything mothers eat will be passed to their baby through breast milk, booby bickies and booby brekkie are made from all natural and organic ingredients with no preservatives or additives. You can download my free ebook, Making More Mummy Milk Naturally. And you'll get 15% off any purchase when you order booby bickies, booby brekkie, or any of the carefully curated breastfeeding accessories at www.boobyfoods.com.au. Use the code TITSUP at checkout to receive your 15% discount. Oh, it does. Absolutely. And then you had a very different birth. Yeah, it definitely was. I think a lot of women describe their second birth after trauma um, quite cathartic because it's that experience that you thought birth was going to be the first time. So it's not a walk in the park. It's still labouring. It's still still work. It's still intense. It's still, but it's, um, we cried. Tom and I cried for probably an hour when he was on my chest because we're like, oh, my God, we did it. We didn't fail. (laughs) Aww. And it was beautiful. partners probably have, you know, they get traumatised too and we don't talk about their experience of, um, you know, everybody asks how she, if you're lucky, usually it's about the baby. and Baby. Is she a good baby? (laughs) It's not how are you. Um, you know what's it saying everybody asks if the baby's eating or sleeping and or 
you know, crying too much, but nobody asks if the mother's eating or sleeping or crying too much. That's exactly right. You're so spot on. It's like, yeah, everyone wants to hold the baby, but no one wants to hold the mum. And especially no one wants to hold the dad. The dad just soldiers on and goes back to work or the partner and they just go back to work. And And everyone at work says, and how's she? They might say, how's she, if you're lucky, or how's the baby? Or, you know, but they don't really ask that guy, how do you feel? And when I wrote my first edition of Parenting by Heart, I went out and I, you know, the publisher said to me, we would like to do this book, but can you, you know, include fathers? Um, mm. Nobody said partners in those days. You know, there wasn't yeah. the same sex acknowledgement. But, you know, I went out and I asked men and how, I don't want to know where you stood or how many nappies you changed. I want to know how you feel. And I yeah. had big men tearing up, you know, like that. their eyes were all, wet and you know they'd sort of be wiping their eyes or blowing their noses saying no one's asked me and and it's so sad it's so hard because they're traumatized too and they probably wonder what sort of part they could have played in this that might have made it better for you that you weren't hurt a hundred percent I had a really good chat with um Lucy Bloom who wrote the book for dads the uh, choose to childbirth and she was so true when she said look we invite these dads in the room. We tell them to support the woman, but we don't tell them how. There's no there's no health literacy other than tickling the back or just not having squeaky shoes, but there's no real, okay, if this happens, if the doctor comes in and says your wife needs an episiotomy, this is what you could say. Like there's, there is no, yeah. we're not giving them the tools. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and then they're helpless and then they don't know I know with one of my was my fourth baby and I won't go into all the other births but my fourth baby I had shut down because of the environment that was going on and I had a med student with me and I said this baby's coming and Mm. you know I'd had an induction that had gone on for nothing was happening because my body wasn't letting this kid out because things were (laughs) quite right and I'd had three other babies that had you know I'd had two hour labors with my previous two not the first one for sure that was a bit harder to get over but never the first one (laughs) no but um you know and this this nurse just walked in when I I went to get on all fours and she said what are you doing you're mucking up the bed and I said baby's coming and she said oh don't be ridiculous you've been mucking around for the last two days and my husband put his face into hers and said she she's had three other kids she'd know that there's a baby in her vagina how many kids have you had and I could have jumped off the bed and given him a hug then because he was just so lady just fucking listen to her you know like (laughs) you know but up till then no he'd been living with the previous two he'd been well one he got locked out of the room and one he was the dad in the corner it took him three babies to even get there for the birth but you know to be there <laughs> actually in the room but you know it was just um yeah it was he just let his instincts take over and was protective but wonderful you know I think first time round, no man would know that isn't it horrible that we have to go through that first time to get to that stage where we do know and same with women like they always we don't know a, we don't know yeah a lot of women yeah I have this, so my husband, my husband works in IT, right, and with um, virtual reality. And I said, surely there's got to be some type of virtual reality birthing experience that women 
if they choose to, it's not going to be, you know, recommended, but if they want to know what it could feel like, that would be amazing because then they wouldn't have to experience that initial, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing for the first time. I don't know. But, yeah. don't know. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, all sorts of things. But it is, it's just, you know, that we, we need to, you know, I've, I've interviewed Rhea Dempsey too on TikTok yes. and, you know, talking about the fathers is, or the partners even. I mean, partners need to be, you know, I've had same-sex partners that I've worked with and, you know, they can both be traumatised if the birthing woman, if something unforeseen happens, you know, it might be that she's had a bleed, it might yeah. be, you know, there, there can be all sorts of things and it's not necessarily physically lasting trauma like you've had, but the fact that there has been something, something that's mm. been traumatic at the time your head has to go, you know, you, you still have to both get through that in your heads. Definitely. And Definitely. Yeah. And then you had two babies and then yeah. you were struggling with two little ones, like I, physically yeah. to deal with that pain and that exhaustion. And then you went to a mother baby unit. I did. Yeah. So we had, um, I think, I'm, I'm happy to say my husband and I are very resilient. So when we find a hurdle and we can't get over it, we go around it or we go under it. We try and find, be resourceful. And so living with pelvic organ prolapse to the extent I do, we've had workarounds. We had things that help us get through the day. So at the time, I would never admit this to anyone because I was so ashamed. But now I'm okay to say I wasn't coping with two babies under two. Uh, Yep, under one, and two babies under one. And so I put them in alternate days of care. So I only really had one baby at home all the time. So we had a family daycare and she'd have Elsie one day, Louis the next day, Elsie one day, Louis the next day, just so I could manage one child because having two of them, and that surgery was right, having two children so young was crippling. We had a nanny as well. So we paid for a private nanny to come into the house, not to look after the children, but to look after all of us. <laughs> you know, she would carry That's the washing. Wonderful. Yes, because the lifting, you know, if you're yeah. carrying the washing basket, if you're lifting children and there's so much lifting to do. Yep. Once you've got a mobile baby and you've got a toddler, you're lifting them in and out of the stroller. You're lifting them in and out of the bed. You're lifting them in and out of the high chair. There's so Everywhere. much lifting. Yeah, we had basically everything on the ground. So there was, there was a change table mat on the floor. We had the cot. Both of my kids were out of cots very young. They were in toddler beds on the ground. So um, we had like a little playpen cage, cage of rage, we used to call it. So to just go to the toilet or just to sit down, I'd let them. I mean, there were lots of toys in there, but they would play in there and whatnot. Um but obviously having a private nanny is really expensive. And so there were times oh. where we couldn't have her for a period of time. Um, but, yeah, life was really, we, had, we did slow cooker meals every day, you know, just to try and keep mm -hmm. things simple. Dinner was on at 7 o'clock in the morning. Shopping was delivered. Um, yeah, constantly having to find ways to just survive, I guess. Yeah, which is very sensible. I mean, you know, it really yeah. is because you could just keep on struggling and go even further down the spiral. So those workarounds are really clever because you can't 
necessarily fix something, but to have a workaround yeah. is really yeah, but creative. I think by the time Louis was probably four weeks, I'd really hit rock bottom because those workarounds were no longer working. And I think too, because he had a whole lot of feeding issues. So this time I was so proud. My boobs, I could breastfeed. I couldn't get it the first time with LC, but the second time I was like, yeah, it's happening. I'm, I know what I'm doing. This is great. And his little tummy had different ideas. Um, he would feed, scream, projectile vomit, feed, scream, projectile vomit. Again, my gut instinct was saying something's not right. So I was trying to see all these professionals for him, but not getting any answers. Just saying, just keep feeding or you stop eating dairy, you stop eating gluten. Um, so basically we were just eating really, really restrictive diet, diet and it was really hard. Um, but it did get to the point with him because he was a crying baby all the time. I just said to my husband, I can't do this. I need you to just stop working. He's like, oh, we can't. We have no money. We can't <laughs> yeah, do that. No money to do that. That's not a choice. <laughs> so I think that's no. We'd we'd ask for someone else to come to the house because uh, our nanny wasn't available anymore. But I was that bad that I didn't actually want anyone else. We hired someone, and the day she was meant to come, I rang her and said, "Oh no, we're okay. Thank you." But really, I was saying, I don't want a stranger in the house. I couldn't. Um, so I said, all right, I need to go to Caratani or Tresillion, either one of those, because it's a support unit. I'll take him and we'll get him sorted and I'll be back. Okay. Okay. They were fully booked for three months. And I think I remember thinking, I'm not going to make it for three. I'm not going to be alive in three months. So, and so what was happening, Tom was holding him in the, the carrier at night for him to sleep because he could only sleep upright. He had really bad reflux. And then we had a consultant come to the house and she said, look, maybe you should look at this in Sydney. They might have vacancies, not knowing that she probably could see what I couldn't see. It's a lot of postnatal or, you know, post-traumatic stress. And so I rang them and I told them, I said, look, all I know, I don't know my baby. All I have ever seen is the top of his head and all he does is cry. And she said, come in, come in on Monday. So I did. And I remember arriving in the unit and Elsie was at home with my mum and Tom and I and Louis were there and I just remember looking around going, "This, I don't belong here. This is a loony bin. This is where people who have real mental health are. I don't belong here. So we checked in and we met some nurses and they searched through all my bags. I'm like, what are you searching for? And then I didn't click that it was a real mental health hospital. So Tom had gone home and I just remember crying the whole first night going, I've made a mistake. I can't be here. This is ridiculous. But then the next day I met an angel nurse. Her name was Gloria. <laughs> oh, what a good name for a, a beautiful yeah. nurse. Yeah. She just came and sat on the end of the bed and she's like, how are you? I said, I think I cried for three hours. I'm like, I don't know how I am. I don't know. I feel numb. So we just basically talked through a whole lot of stuff and um, she said, oh, why don't you just stay one more night? You're here anyway. I'll take him. It's okay. You get some good sleep and then we'll chat again tomorrow. So he did. He went and slept with them for the night and he had a bottle and he was totally fine. When I woke up the next morning, I was like, wow, I'm feeling semi-human again. 
then they wanted me to start going to a couple of the sessions. I'm like, I'm not going there. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just tired, for God's sake. <laughs> so I didn't go. <laughs> I don't need therapy. I've just had a traumatic birth and a whole whole lot of yeah. go down, but I'm fine. <laughs> totally fine. And I saw women taking medication there and I will be brave enough to say I was judging them, going, that's not me, that's you, that's fine if you're not that well, but I'm totally fine. It probably took me a week, Pinky, to realise that um, I really needed to be there. I had to I had to be there because I was at the point where I'd get to breakfast and if I couldn't decide between peanut butter and Vegemite, I just wasn't eating at all. And I didn't know that that's a sign of PTSD or um, postnatal depression. I just wasn't eating at all. And a, the next week when I started going to therapy, I was like, oh, oh, that's me. I do that. I thought, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? And then it really got me thinking that I was in the right place and Louis was in the right place. We were all being really well cared for by a psychiatrist and I was there still three weeks later. <laughs> oh, so you went past that denial to actually accepting that you needed some outside help. A hundred percent. And I really needed that help but didn't even know it. I had no idea I even needed it. So what do you say? Because I guess this, the slippy slope is so gradual and when you really don't know what you don't know, you know, it, it is really hard. But So what have you got to say to other women who might be really struggling right now mm. but trying to keep their shit together and present this happy little family? You don't. The only person you're hurting is yourself. So here's an example. I... And this is the way I think with that A-type personality, we think we're right all the time. And I think mums at home think, well, I'll be right. I'm okay. If I just work harder, if I just scrub that shower a little bit more, it'll come clean. So if I just try that little bit harder with my kids, they'll come good. Mm, <laughs> Sometimes mm. it doesn't work that way. Sometimes there's an easier path. Sometimes it's okay to let other women in, like the nurses in that unit, to literally support you, hold you up, take that baby and let you sleep and feed you food. And yeah, it's um all it's mothers really... should be nourished and looked after, really. Yeah. You know, really. And it's a privilege yeah. for anyone. I mean, even if you're just at home, you haven't gone into a unit, you've had a baby, whatever's happened to you when you've had a baby, you're still recovering. It's a massive recovery from having a baby. And we don't yes. have to be, there's nothing to prove, is there? And everybody thinks it's an absolute privilege to be supporting a family or to be involved with this baby. And almost all of your friends would hold that baby while you had a shower or while you had a nap, probably take the nap over the shower. <laughs> but it's too hard to you can't ask. even ask. And I mm. think, um, yeah, so, so obviously, as I said, some of those women were on medication, but I think even just being sleep deprived and that maternal exhaustion is an okay reason to, to go to a unit like that. Totally, totally. And, and have those people. And I, I didn't want medication and they supported me with that, by the way. I ne they were never forcing me to take anything or do anything. I, was, I had my own thoughts still. But that level of support for a full week, I got to sleep 
every single night and they took him and he was totally, I would wake up and sneak and try and spy on them to make sure he was okay. He was totally fine. And I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think. But you also didn't have your household, um, you know, running to do. You didn't have to think, is there food in the fridge? Is there groceries being ordered? Have I got a one-year-old? You know, what does she need? Do I have to take her outside to play? You know, just simple little things. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, that trauma probably (laughs) stemmed from the first birth. Mm. And it all came out after Louis' birth. But I didn't realise. Yeah. So that was such a turning point, I guess. It was. We, yeah, yeah. I think I think about halfway through the program, I thought, no, I'm ready to go home. I miss my girl too much. This is ridiculous. And I, I got sent home for a weekend, and it all went pear shaped. It went to shit within a few hours because I had done all the hard work up at the unit, but Tom hadn't been involved in any of it. So he was still who we were before I left, and then I had changed. So the next time, like the next week, he actually came up and had to stay with us um, and Louis and come to some of the sessions and do some of those so that we were on the same page. And we went home a different family. It was wonderful. It was like a great program. It really was. It really, really was. And, and you got your breastfeeding the- sorted, didn't you? you? Did you find out Louis um, had a tongue tie or something? He had a tongue tie, but he also, so the, Another main thing for me was that while we were there, he got access to a paediatrician. So I didn't have to wait for months. He was going to be seen then and there. So when they did see him and tested his poo, he did have major food allergies and then was switched to an allergy formula. Once he started that rice formula, he smiled for the first time. Like he was a totally different baby. So I, when I say we went home different, he went home a different baby. He was no longer screening and projectile vomiting. It was amazing. Right. Yeah. So so you had a whole family makeover. Pretty we much. did. Yeah. Yeah. And letting go of that breastfeeding, I will just point out, was really hard because I really wanted to do it. So having the women there to support me to make sure I didn't get blocked ducks and I was crying every every time I was leaking and the, the milk was drying up and that was a transition that I really didn't want to do, but I loved being able to do it there because, yeah, oh, they were massive all there. to do it. And, you know, maybe there was another way, maybe there wasn't, but, you know, to have that support because mm-hmm. you needed, you needed loving because you also, again, have a hormonal withdrawal when you wean. So, you know, <laughs> that can tip your hormones another way, you know, just, yeah. just make things that little bit harder. And if you're home alone and you're feeling that grief and you're, you know, making big decisions that that didn't necessarily feel perfect for you again. You know, you, you that's right. You're bringing up all sorts of things too. Yeah. So you've had big costs emotionally, physically, <laughs> and financially. Like you're saying, you know, paying for people to care for you, huge. Every every psychologist visit, every psychiatrist visit, every specialist visit. There's another three hundred bucks. It's easy it's massive isn't it mm-hmm. it absolutely is and I will say that I am very lucky and I understand my privileged life in this world to the fact that I have private health insurance and I always have I was a teacher and that pretty much when you're in 
when you go into teaching, they say sign up for private health because it's part of teachers health fund. And so you naturally do because you're like, oh, okay, that's what you do. And I just am now so lucky because had I not had that, I would not have had access to those resources. So um, it still has cost us a lot. I think both Tom and I would saved I'd saved a full year's worth of wages so I could have my, my maternity leave with LC and then some, some time off. And I think we chewed through all of that within three months with medical appointments. Wow. That really puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 So the health insurance was there. It's massive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're... Gee, we could talk for a couple of hours here. <laughs> I know, it's huge, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and the, the cost is still ongoing. It's one of those things where um, I just wish it was a bit more equal for everyone. I know I'm very lucky to be able to still do the things that I do and have my psychologist and do all of those things, but they've been really hard times too. We've had to sell things. We had to sell our car at one point. Um, we weren't using it, but I was like, well, we've got to get rid of it. We had to sell cots and prams that we weren't using to be able to access things. So it's not always lucky, but you've got to do what you've got to do. Yeah, yeah. And now you're on this mission. I mean, people can go and find out your whole story by reading your book. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the Day My Vagina Broke. And I remember when I saw the title, I thought, oh, that sounds scary. It's actually not horrible book it's actually quite positive and it's you know while it's real and it's raw and all those sorts of things it's not scary to read because I kept thinking my daughter was pregnant when I got my copy of it and I thought I actually can't send it to her because I'm not going to be there to support her through this birth yeah this was really my thought at that time I mean now that she's had her child I could probably say do you want to read this or but but I still need to be there in person Mm to see how she feels about her birth rather than correct you know just drop something on her I think that was that was more my thing so you know and I think it's a fantastic book for health professionals to read um but you're on a mission to not only open conversations about birth care but also how we talk about birth and how can we help women feel prepared for the different outcomes without being overwhelmed by fear and I I even wonder whether women are in that space to hear before they have that baby. Like, you know, your sister tried to say something <laughs> to you and you said, oh, no, I'm just going to breathe this baby out. Um, but I know the day I went into labour with my very first baby, it was Easter and we were at my mother-in-law's place and my husband's auntie was there and she told me about her horrendous birth with her first baby <laughs> and it was so much trauma that, you know, she never had another child. She and her husband slept in separate rooms ever after. Wow. Not, not quite in those words, but, you know, I, I just thought she was a stupid old duck trying to scare me. I didn't even, yeah. you know, it didn't even occur to me that that poor woman never had the language and no one had ever listened to her anyway. You know, this was years ago. Like, you know, she'd probably be 100 years old now if she was still alive. I don't know, but... I always just thought she was a crazy old duck because, <laughs> well, you know, I had lot very long hair. And yeah, this, oh, that's we went horrible. To her for afternoon tea, she looked at me and said, do you have knits? I read in the paper the other day where all these young people with long hair have got knits. I mean, I just had her in the nut box anyway. 
But then when she told me this <laughs> terrible story, I just went, and I was actually running oh. to the toilet, you know, having my bowels open. I was, I was in labour that evening. You know, it was really starting. Oh, wow. But I didn't realise it was starting. And here she is telling me this terrible story. And even my own mother said to me that um, I had damaged her so much. And I was a faucets baby. I had mm -hmm. damaged her so much. I'd wrecked her body. So she had to sleep with me because she couldn't get out of bed and she couldn't stand up. And I always thought I must have done something, you know, the way she expressed it. But again, yeah. you know, I know that whatever happened to her and I don't really know what I know. She had a forceps delivery, but, you know, she's in her 90s now. And she may well talk about it one day, but I, I mean, I don't, there's no point me going there with her really at yeah. this stage of her life. But I, I just go, where can, you know, do you think women are even open to, not that you want to scare them, but. Definitely you know, not conversations around other ways that could have happened. Perhaps, what do you think? Yeah, that is, is such a good question, and it's something I'm constantly, obviously, questioning myself because I now have this little five-year-old girl who I'm adamant this isn't happening to her. But um, I've also promised myself I'm never going to really let her know to the extent because I never want her to feel like this was her fault. She had nothing yeah. to do with it. And yeah. I wrote the book for her because, and I've dedicated it to her because I need to make sure that there is change in this childbirth space because I felt, Tom and I both felt really blindsided. We're like, well, how does this even happen? No one ever talked to us about this stuff. I think you're right in the sense in the element. Would we have taken it in anyway? Mm. Probably not. Probably not knowing how stubborn I am, knowing how headstrong I am. When I believe in something, I think that that's what's going to happen. If someone had said to me, like your aunt, uh, aunt-in-law, that she, they had a traumatic birth, I probably would have gone in one ear and out the other, like, la, 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 that's not going to happen to me. Yeah, that's what I was I'm like. Yeah, la, la, yeah. la, la, la. It wasn't that I was going to get it right. I just thought, well, other people come back and have second babies. It can't be that bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I had worked as a nurse. I'd seen people having babies. I you know, I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that, I don't know why it didn't occur to me, but it didn't occur to me that, but, you know, yeah, it would I, happen. I think, you know, it happens to other people. It doesn't happen to you. Correct. Lisa Wilkinson is famous for saying she was in that birthing suite and, and her, you know, in that, um, sorry, in that birthing class. And they said, oh, one in five is going to have a cesarean. And she looked around like, oh, I wonder which one of you it's going to be. And it ended up being yeah. her. So I think, how we communicate about childbirth in particular is a very loaded question because it depends on the individual how they could receive it and how we present it. So my book was never, like you said, never meant to scare women. The title is provocative, yes. Yeah. Because had I said on there the day I got a pelvic organ prolapse, no one would be talking about it. No one would give a shit. No. But as soon as you say vagina being broken, they're like, what's that? What happened? You know, it, it's, yeah. And it's obviously, obviously the story, I do want it to be a positive story. And there's lots of reflective questions at the end of each chapter, because I hope that women who have, perhaps if you're pregnant, which is something I've learned from other experts like yourself and, and Lucy, is that when you're already pregnant in that state, it might not be something you choose to read. It might not, mm. but maybe before that, 
maybe before you're pregnant, before you've got the hormones, before you've got that confusing thought pattern, all the people who are charged to care for you to read it and then talk to you, have those questions with you. In my mind, by the time Elsie's ready, this is my plan, right? Right. Is that before she's pregnant, she's going to know so much about her pelvic health, her pelvic floor, how it works, how to look after her whole pelvic area, just as she would if she wanted to increase her muscle in her arm or if she wanted to get abs. It's just going to be another body part that she needs to know how to care for. So no constant constipation or um, knowing how to release it as much as, you know, strengthen it. But then when she's ready to have a baby, her care is going to be from the minute she's pregnant right up until the birth. And by that, I think a one-hour birthing class is never enough. You need to be cared for throughout that whole nine-month period, including talking to a psychologist at some point seeing a women's pelvic health physio visiting a doula finding out what they do to support you talking to a midwife asking an obstetrician what a cesarean is and the process before you make your decision you know what I mean but that hand holding is throughout the entire time and it's it's a very unbiased balanced view of well this is what an obstetrician does this is what midwifery does and then be able to make her decision. Okay, I want to, and looking at her as an individual, not one size fits most. And I do realize that when I was pregnant with her, I was a geriatric mum. <laughs> and I had Those gestational terms diabetes. Again, that language again. Yep. <laughs> yep. I was, uh, I had gestational diabetes and um, I had previous cancer. So obviously there was a lot of anxiety already and, um, you know, worries is there, but just so many risk factors that I think, or just factors that people should have let me talk about my fears a bit more. So when I said, Mm. oh, I'm really scared. I'm going to, she's going to die. I'm going to have a stillbirth rather than telling me, oh, stop being a worry wart. Someone could have said, hey, let's talk about that some more, Steph. Let's unpack that with you. Let's refer you to a counsellor to be able to work through those fears before you're in the labour room? (laughs) Yes, 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 because it's not just about ticking the boxes on the chart, you know, has that woman got a history of X, Y, Z, you know, but what support might she need right now through the pregnancy and what support, would she need extra support later maybe? Maybe. if she's got a family history of mental illness or depression or anxiety, you know, any of those, or she's ever had depression before herself. You know, those sort of things can all pack into what sort of support 100%. might she need afterwards and what, what are her fears now? What sort of support would she need? And that would be wonderful. Here's hoping somewhere along the line, people go beyond that questionnaire and do some referring to. Yes, referring, support. referring. Definitely. And help I professionals the... who care postnatally too. Yes. You know, I'm, I mean, yes. I'm the biggest referrer in town, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's from the psychologist great. to the psychiatrist to the postnatal depression specialist to whatever you know when when you actually sit with a mum and unpack it's not just for me it's not just about her breastfeeding experience often there's other things and often it's oh, an unsettled yeah. baby so then why is not not that you've got an unsettled baby that this baby needs fixing but how's the mother yeah and I do think that having that support throughout that entire time just gives you more time to 
I don't know, to prepare and think rather than just, it feels like it's always at the last minute. Like you, you spend a lot of time picking nursery furniture and buying the right Ooh. nappies and researching <laughs> wipes and all of those things and the best type of dummy or not to use a dummy or God, you know, but no one actually thinks about, well, what about the mum when she's really hungry and there's no food? Yes. Yeah. What's no. her, you know, does she even know that she should be stocking up food in her freezer? Does her partner even know that he should be handing her food when she's stuck on the couch with that baby for hours on end? Yeah. Or The water, the, the jug, jug of, of water. water. Like, yeah. Every time you latch, all of a sudden you've got desert mouth. I'm like, no one told you that. <laughs> no, so it is those little things, yeah. And where can people find help if they're experiencing the impacts of birth trauma? I know you've mentioned a good organisation. You've also got your website. So tell me these things and then I will put them in the show notes so women can access them. Yeah, look. It's really tricky because there are a lot of organisations who can support women like Panda. I think Panda is a really good place to start um, looking at postnatal. There's um, the Gidget Foundation as well. But sometimes it all depends on who also who picks up the phone. And what I will say is that if you are ringing a helpline and the person on the other end you don't particularly click with for whatever reason, hang up. And ring again because you may just find the one that gels for you. And that, like my Gloria, who sat on the end of my bed in that unit, we just clicked. And from that moment, I was able to establish that trust and get that help. Find the one that works for you, and it's okay to ring 10 times. Do you know what I mean? Like, just that's wonderful it, advice because people can, you know, we all connect with different people in different ways. And it's not that they're sure. incompetent, it's just that correct that connection. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So that's when really you find good advice to put that phone down and ring again. And even if it's yeah. half an hour later or the next day, just ring again. Yep. Or get someone else to ring on your behalf or whatever it is. Mm. It's just don't give up on that first thing that, that might not work for you. That's brilliant. Um, now, where can people follow you? You've got a podcast, you've got a website, Ooh, yes. you've got social media. <laughs> yeah, we're actually launching the, the lowdown with Brave Mama in Women's Health Week this week coming. It's all very exciting where we're looking at, you know, Are You Okay Day and Lip Timber and women's mental health, all of those things we're talking about. Um, and then obviously at Brave Mama website and then Instagram, Facebook, you know, the usual places. Yeah, but it's all under Brave Mama. It is, yeah. Yeah. So we'll pop that in the show notes. Now, just our very final question. What's your best tip for our ladies or our listeners on how to be the mother you want to be? Cool. Uh, this is going to sound ridiculous, but stay off social media. I just said go to my social media. Now I'm saying get <laughs> off social media. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean don't sit there scrolling look at these beautiful pictures in their lovely filters and all the colors are matching and that might work for them and I'm not having a go at what they do but when you've just got to find what works for you and that's not going to come easy it's hard work you got to work it's hard work and you know most of the stuff on social media is people's a game we're not yeah. You know, it's a bit sad to, to think that, but, you know, this is often the, the good stuff. And then and Isn't we probably, it? 
we probably all know people personally and we see their social media and you go, you're <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. My neighbour, when I go outside and he goes, oh, you've been working today, Steph. I said, how do you know? He goes, because you look really nice. <laughs> <laughs> you've got makeup on. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I've been working. Gives me purpose. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny how we those Instagram stories where they've got, oh, this is this is me and then this is the real me, but they don't look that different. You know, yes. that mum just, yeah. just got a messy bun. But to me, I'm like on those really bad days, I don't, I can't even pick up my phone. Don't even look at me. Do you know what I mean? Like that's real. Yeah. That's real. Yeah. And people probably don't, you know, most, it takes a lot of confidence. I think Mia Friedman's probably the only one that's got enough confidence to do that. <laughs> I take, take a video of herself putting on her makeup or telling you about something as she's putting on her makeup or something. But, you know, yes. Okay. <laughs> so our social media, play your own game, play your own race. Is it run your own race? Yeah, stay in your own lane and, and definitely be okay to ask for help. Yep, that's great. So thanks, Steph. That's fabulous. And this oh, is it's been exciting. So, oh, so lovely to chat with you. Yeah, we could chat for a very long time. Tits up, ladies. Pull up your big girl pants. We can do this. We are mothers. In the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional owners and custodians of this country and their connection to land, water and community. We pay our respect to them, their cultures and customs and to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tits Up. This podcast was produced by Dave Stokes. For more information, connections with our guests and special offers from our show sponsors, please pop over to my website and check out the show notes, www.pinkymccabe.com. I would love it if you could please share the love by leaving a review. Five-star reviews will help other mums to find this support and information too.